0: showed it because I want you to know it takes an ocean to turn an aircraft carrier around. The big ship. It's huge. It's very impressive to me. And it takes a while for that to turn all the way around and move in the opposite direction. You'll notice in your bulletin today the title, Turning the USS Culture. Now, I don't mean turning the United States culture, it's just my little illustration of saying turning the culture, turning the culture of a church. We have been these past oh, dozen or so weeks in a study during our Bible study time and in the preaching hour in a study called Aspire. We're currently in that section of Aspire that's talking about the church. And last week from the book of Ephesians, we talked about the mature church and some of the things that we looked at that the differences between an immature church and a maturing church, a church that's on its way, that is continuing to journey in that level of maturity. And today, we're, we're, we're given the task of talking about the mission of the church, the mission of the church. And I want us, again, as I introduced last week, to be talking to you very plainly, very frankly, of Pastor Buzz to First Point. Now you say, well, don't you do that every week? Well, pretty much that's right. I do that every week. But these are a little bit more um, heart-to-heart talks in some respect, boots-on-the-ground kind of practical kinds of things, and... uh, I was remarking last week when we were were talking about from, from Ephesians about God giving gifts and us recognizing that we're in a particular important time, a transitional time in the life of our church, and today I want to move that ball down the field just a little bit in talking about culture, and you can imagine from the title and maybe also from the video that I'm going to suggest to you that the culture needs to change. The culture needs to change, the culture needs to turn, but turning the culture of a place like a church or a particular geographic location is much like that metaphor of turning a large ship in the ocean. It's not easy. The reality is most people would say, I want change. Most people would say, I want change, whether it's about the uh, body politic or even the life of the church or even at your job. Most people would say, you know, I really wish we would change around here. The problem is no one person wants to do the changing. And in order for that big ship to turn, it's going to take the individual to change. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at what I'm particularly talking to you about in the change, and particularly in the life of the First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach. Now, as I said last week, uh, one, of the, one of the little anecdotes that I mentioned was that pastors are saying that it's somewhere between four, five, maybe six years, in a period of four to five six years, they're preaching to predominantly a different church than they were four or five years ago. I realize that that's the case here in this fellowship. Many of you have come in the last four or five years. Very few of you have been around 20 years or longer. And so knowing the history of the church is somewhat irrelevant to a significant portion of people in the church. So I'll speak in slightly a little bit more generalities in the life of the church or in the life of the American church for just a bit. I'm going through a book entitled The Gospel Driven Church by Jared Wilson. Excellent book. I recommend it to you. If you want to know where I'm reading in preparation to a sermon, that's one uh, tool. Uh, Tim Keller's book on gospel in life and uh, City to City. A couple of books by Tim Keller, excellent books in that arena as far as understanding and changing of the culture. These are the kinds of things that I'm looking at and, and reading in preparation for these times together. Well, in his book, Gospel-Driven Church, Wilson um, parallels, puts in juxtaposition, contrasts the attractional church and the gospel-driven church, two approaches to two different approaches to doing church the attractional church and the gospel driven church now the attractional church some of you might know it by a synonym like uh, the seeker sensitive church it's been around oh even as early as the mid 80s certainly came to prominence in the 90s and in the 2000s and Uh, pretty much everybody adopting an attractional perspective of doing church. The primary way of doing ministry is to make church, to make Christianity, to make even Jesus appealing to people, to make it appealing to people. One of the, the... key characteristics and how to make it appealing is to first go into the neighborhoods around especially if it's a church start or a new church an early church and, and go into the neighborhood and and talk to people and find out what they're what they're hurting about what their felt needs are try and discover from the people <laughs> what makes them tick and then come back into your four walls and um uh, fashion your ministries around those felt needs what's what's going on in your community and, and so the approach to ministry is to go out there find out what the felt needs are then come back and put them into practice the idea is that's drawing them in now there's two basic ideologies in this approach not a it's kind of a big word the way people think ideology, the way people think. And the first ideology is consumerism. You can see that. Let's approach the people in our community just like they approach everything else that they're doing. Everything else that they're doing, they're a consumer. They go to a store to buy something. Um, They even pick the jobs that they have because of what it will bring to them. And so we're consumers. We live in this free enterprise system, and we're consumers. Therefore, um, uh, particularly in my career as, as a teacher, I would sit and look at 30, 40, 75 students sitting there, and they had a consumer perspective. We've paid our tuition, now you deliver. And any teacher worth their salt rejects that kind of premise. We don't like being considered that we're a commodity but you purchase and you've paid your money and as a consumer you want to get. The attractional model looks at the people out there and says we need to approach them the way they approach everything else and therefore they are the consumers we need to present the product that they'll come and buy. So it, it, it needs to be pretty, it needs to be glitzy, it needs to be, you know, hip, it needs to be popping, it needs to be whatever the marketeers tell us it needs to be if you're going to attract. They're consumers. The second ideology of the uh, attractional model church, the second ideology is pragmatism pragmatism now again another word i don't use every day pragmatism what is pragmatic well bottom line is a definition for pragmatic is does it work does it work in other words does it put numbers and noses in the, in the same place does it put people in the building does it put a a person in the pew is it growing numbers is it gathering people this is the attractional ideology Combined with consumerism, is what gets people in the door. The idea is if we can get them in the door with the bells and whistles, then we can tell them what's really important. If we we can attract them in, you see, attraction, if we can bring them in and convince them that this is the place where they can get what they want and more people come in, then we have them here and we can begin to tell them what, what more solid truth really is the attractional church this is their approach to it now before i do any critiquing of that let's just go to the differences found in the gospel driven church first so the gospel driven church the ministry here incorporates this is this is wilson so i'm going to have to unpack it a little bit for me okay so the gospel driven church um, Incorporates the implications of the complete gospel. It incorporates the implications of the gospel. What in the world does that mean? Well, what it means simply is this let's start with the gospel. God has created human beings. God has created everything for that matter and he's declared that they were good and when it came to male and female he said that that's very good. That you're to reflect God's glory that's the reason we're created in his image. We're to reproduce a godly heritage and to grow up people both physically in the world, have children, but also making disciples, We're to re- reproduce them. And we're to reign over his earth, to give us dominion over. So God created that. But we fouled that up, didn't we? Adam and Eve, the first sinners, and the Bible makes it very clear that through Adam and Eve, sin has been inherited by all of us. And from that point on, from from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God has been about redeeming a people that will reflect his glory, buying them back, the, the progress, the history of redemption. That's the story of the Bible. And that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to redeem that people to himself. And we call this the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ, that because we have this inherited sin, that we have the sin that we need to be made clean, but we can't make ourselves clean. We can't change our spots. And therefore, God has sent his son into the world to pay that price for those sins. Uh, that we have committed the the reasons that we have disobeyed God and disobeyed his word. And here we keep trying but we discover that we can't do enough. And so he sent his son to live in the world a perfect life, a perfect life and to offer himself up as that ransom, as that perfect sacrifice. And then God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that price, that that redeeming price, the, the, the reward, the ransom of that price, and I am going to give it to you. I am going to impute it to you and I'm going to take all of your sin, and I'm going to put it on Jesus. And on the cross, he paid that penalty, and God looked down on the cross, and he was satisfied with that penalty, so that he raised Jesus from the dead. This is the gospel. The the wrath of God has been satisfied for us on Jesus, and God has given us Jesus's righteousness. And therefore now we can become, we can come boldly before that throne of grace. We can stand in his presence, not with the righteousness of our own, but clothed with someone else's righteousness. All of this is the gospel. Okay, pastor, I've heard you say that before. Now back to, to this point that you're making, that the gospel-driven church incorporates the implications of the complete gospel that's right the gospel driven church sees not only the people inside the church but also people outside the church as people of whom God has created and to a certain extent still God has created in his image and they are still in his image that makes them very very valuable that's an implication of the gospel. What's implication number two? I won't spend that much time, but implication number two must be that they are fallen just like we are fallen. Or maybe it would be better to say we are fallen just like they are fallen. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? The implications the implications of a, for a gospel-driven church are that we are as fallen as they are as, okay, you can argue with me, all right, but we've been redeemed, that progress of redemption, God has visited our lives and changed our hearts, by his sovereign grace, he has come in and done that spiritual surgery that no human being can do, and he's taken out a heart of stone, and he's given a heart of flesh, and now that heart can turn to him in faith and repentance. Well, what's the implication? The implication is is if God doesn't do that for someone out there, then they're going to be lost forever and ever. And then we reflect on, well, how is it that I found out about that? How is it that I heard about that? I have the written word of God. I have somebody who came and spoke to me. How are they going to find out about that? It's the implications of the gospel. The gospel-driven church incorporates the implications of the gospel in everything that we do and so therefore when we invite families in and ask them to sign up for their kids for awana what are we thinking well this is fun and game night for kids that's all we're thinking not this church not that commander no siri bob that's not the ethos of the life of this kind of a church We're thinking that there's a lost world out there been created in God's image and and that we bring them in so that they can hear the Word of God, that they can learn the Word of God, that they can see and hear this gospel. It's different than the attractional model church. The gospel-driven church says, contrary to the attractional model, the attractional model says, come and see. The gospel-driven church says, go and tell. It's different. Now, don't forget what I'm talking about today. Hope you're still with me. Showed you a big ship, and that ship way out in the ocean is turning, and I'm calling it the USS Culture. Well, Well, Pastor, why are you talking to us? I would say to you, historically speaking, we have been an attractional church. We've been an attractional church. Uh, I might be going back 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. We come from an attractional model uh, past. Okay? Now, don't take that as, first of all, a huge slam. There are some aspects about the attractional model church, the, the attractional approach, that we should remember and retain. Do we not want people to come? Do we not want folks to come in do we not want to do things with excellence we do and those are good and those are right things to do but when they drive the ship that's another thing what do we want to drive the ship well of course we want the gospel to do that Now, here's what I'd like to do in our time together. I would like to go to Jeremiah chapter 29, and what I'd like to do is unpack Jeremiah 29 with these two frameworks in mind. I'd like to take a look at it and say, well, how would the attractional church look at Jeremiah chapter 29, and how would the gospel-driven church look at Jeremiah 29? So, go in your Bibles with me, would you please? To Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 29, and um, I've never fully unpacked it in the way that I'm going to. We've talked about it in times past before, but let me just go to the very, very end so that if you're still here and you have a tendency to fade on me as the sermons go on, let's just go right to the end and then let's back up, Okay. And, and what I'm suggesting to you is we need to more intentionally be a gospel-driven church. And in order to do that, we need to change. We need to change. It is this pastor's perspective without great self-condemnation that we need a new leader to do that change. That's where I am. So let's just be plain about it. I want I want boots on the ground during this time of talking about the life of the church and the transition. I already told you once today. Next week we'll be nine o'clock in the morning praying here together. There's going to be more information about our our, our uh, progress and finding a lead pastor, and so that's the atmosphere that we're in right now I am feeling compelled of God to do whatever God has called me to do to get us ready for that and one of those things is we need to change we need to change more intentionally now we have Don't get me wrong. I don't think that we're diametrically wrong, but I do think that we haven't been as overtly intentional about what we need to do as we need to be. (laughs) Okay, sorry for that. All right, Jeremiah 29 maybe will help us see some of these things. I hope that it will. I think that it will. These are the words. Of the letter, I'm going to read the whole text here. So, not the whole chapter. Uh, we might get down as far as verse 14. So, it's quite a bit of scripture. We haven't read scripture in our worship service today. So, here it is. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests. I want to pause here because I want you to get the context. I want you to get the context. I think that'll add to the understanding of the reading. And so before we read any further, you see Jeremiah is sending a letter to exiles. Who are these? These are people from Israel. These are people more specifically from the land of Judah, the province right around Jerusalem and including Jerusalem. They've been attacked And they've been carried away into Babylonian exile. That is up and around the the fertile crescent over to Babylon down between the Two rivers, Tigris, Euphrates, almost down to the Persian Gulf. If you've looked at maps on the news about that, this is where Judah has been carried into captivity, and they're living there. They've been there for a while, not a long time. And quite frankly, you, you look at Ezekiel, who's prophesying during this time, and it appears that these people are not all that upset. At least, Buzz paraphrase inserting inserting. It doesn't appear that these people are as upset as God wants them to be. Why they're sitting around there saying, Well, next year in Jerusalem, you know, in other words, we're in exile right now, but, you know, pretty soon, year two, we'll be back in Jerusalem. They're, They're sitting around, you know, their iced tea under the juniper tree, just, you know, okay, it's not so bad. The temple's there. God's house is there, the palace is there, the city's there, the the wall is there, and they're kind of almost nonchalant about, about being there. Now, one person who's still left back in Jerusalem is Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah is writing a letter to them And uh, he's written more than one, and toward the end of the book of Jeremiah, he's really trying to bring home to them that they need to turn back to God and not be trusting in brick and mortar and walls and houses and security of their homes back home, but to trust in God. So here now, once again, Jeremiah's here. They've been over here. They've not been there a long time. We don't know exactly how long. They've not been there a long time, and Jeremiah's writing this letter. All right, now here's the the letter. uh, To the exiles and to the priests and to the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. In other words, those people had been taken into exile. Now here's the letter in verse 3. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, Jemariah, Jermi- uh, Gemariah, I'll get it, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters.'" Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners Who are among you, deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. In my name I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10 For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and, and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you declares the Lord and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you declares the Lord and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile so this is a letter and there's more that Jeremiah has written to the exiles now as I said what I want to do is I want to begin by taking a look at what the attractional model sees Now, just like I did last week, you know, I did this immature thing and mature thing back and forth, and I tried to emphasize to you, at that point, I was not talking about something that was bad and then something that was good, or that is, I'm not talking about something that's 180 degrees diametrically opposed. We can actually, as I already have, found some things that are Um, valuable in both of the models so I don't really want to set up this all bad all good scenario but I do want us to take a look at at least how the attractional and what they would focus on what what the attractional church would emphasize in looking at it so I, I, I actually it's the second part the attractional model would say this Uh, We focus in on when 70 years are completed, this is what God will do for you. Now, the reason I went into that disclaimer a minute ago is because it is the Word of God. (laughs) It does say that I have a plan for you. It does say that there's a future and that there's a hope. All too often, this passage of Scripture is preached way out of their context. These people are in prison. They're in exile. God has a plan, and part of that plan is His discipline, where they are right now. Now, an attractional model isn't going to preach that. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord of hosts. Plans for a future and a hope. You will be found by me. There's hope and there's direction completely in the future. And so the emphasis placed on verse 11 here. For I know the plans I have. We see on plaques, don't we? Kids have it on the posters in the room. I'm I'm glad at least they have Christian posters up there. But it's it's like, in our day, in our day, this cultural shift is more like this. The the, the plaque and the poster idea says this. And I like what Keller says about this, so that's why I'm bringing it out to you. In non-Western society, you're in a Western society, in non-Western societies, the culture is about the family. The culture is about the community. They still have these... Sometimes it's not as healthy as you'd like it to be because it's a it's a shame and honor kind of culture. That is, unless you act like this, you're shamed in the community. That's, that's not altogether healthy. And yet still what I'm trying to bring out is the general description of a non-Western society that says the way you find your significance, the way you find out your identity is who you are in the family, who your family is in the community, how you support, support and develop and work with the community. It's about how we are interconnected as human beings. In the Western society, how you find yourself is by looking inside. The only place that I can look to find my true identity today is who I am inside. And so young people and older people alike are trying to figure out who we are and what we're all about and this difference of culture. And so it's within that kind of a framework when I start reading, still the Word of God, I have to say that because I never want you to get the impression, oh, well, that's not for me, or I shouldn't read that. No, but you should read it biblically. I know the plans I have. Oh, boy, God really likes me, man. God's got a plan for me. God's got a hope and a future for me. I feel pretty good about myself. And I'm going to develop church ministry around how you can fulfill your personal destiny. How you can find your identity. Come to this church and you will really find out who you are in Christ and oh, you will find the real purpose of your life. I've I've preached that before. And it's not altogether wrong. But when that's what drives the ship, when that's what takes the emphasis, then we're into a me Christianity who sees an individual an individualism and I'm getting what I want I'm getting what I paid for I'm getting I'm, I'm telling the world what they want to hear so they'll buy my product and it works and the pragmatism will bring it in and that's a dynamic be who you really are supposed to be here and now and it's filling churches it's filling the attractional model says look what god's going to do for me not all wrong not all wrong but when that drives the ship it takes the church in the wrong direction on the other hand what how does the gospel how does the gospel driven church read this passage well i think it emphasizes back to chapter 29 here Starts in four, but really gets down to it in verse five. Take a look. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Have kids, marry them off. Have grandkids, marry them off. Build your houses, plant your gardens. What are you supposed to do? Well, the first thing God is saying is, I have... Oh, wait a minute. No, you haven't. That's a little confusing. Let's see. Uh, verse 1. These are the words of Jeremiah. Prophets is serving elders, exiles to the priests, the prophets, and all the people... Whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. Oh, so it's Nebuchadnezzar who put him in Babylon. Well, now wait a minute. Build houses, plant gardens, wives, sons, and daughters, give daughters. But seek the where of the city, city where I have sent you in. What is it? Is it Nebuchadnezzar or is it God? Is it Nebuchadnezzar or is it God that put them where they are? Yes, right? (laughs) That's right. Because the king is in the hand of God. And and the king is God's tool to carry out what he, says it all through the the conflict with Assyria, says it all through with the conflict with the Babylon, that, that the king does what God, God's the one in charge, and God has put them into exile. And it is God who says, when you get there, live there. Because when he says 70 years have been appointed for Babylon, he's not trying to tell them, oh, don't worry about it, y'all. It's only going to be 70 years, and then you're coming home. No. When a group of people is singing that they're going to be someplace for maybe one or two years, what does 70 years sound like? Well, it sounds like just what it is. In the Bible, it's a... It's a lifetime. You're going to be there. Live like I put you there. Live like God the Father put you there. Let's come back. No, let's deal with it right now. (laughs) Remember what I told you? I was going to pick. How many snowbirds still here? Oh, they're all gone, so we can talk about them. Think about that for a moment. We have wonderful, I love them. Listen, there's nothing derogatory. It's just kind of an illustration that we live with. A snowbird comes down. I think that our financial secretary, this is not part of the sermon. Am I going to get in trouble now? Our financial secretary would tell me Pastor, you would be surprised at how these snowbirds support the life of this church. I know some of them. I'm living in the house of one of them right now. And God sends these people down for three months, four months, six months each year. And so many of them in this place, in this church, you know what they do? They come and they participate like they live here. Always, They're in the choir singing. They're doing ministries in the nursery. They participate in the life of the church. That's a great illustration for us of what God is saying. Here's a problem that I've had from day one. Remember, I'm just kind of talking to you like Buzz and playing Boots on the Ground. Maybe you say, how come you haven't been doing this for nine years? I don't know, I don't know. I lost my train of thought, Carol. Can you give me a minute? No. Um, these people, they come and they live like they're here. And one of the problems that I've had for about nine years is trying to figure out what the cohesive nature of the life of this church is. You see, because everybody wants a vision. Everybody wants this central, focused objective that says you see that point right there you see that mountain right there you see that objective right there that's what we need to do and that's how we need to do it now let's everybody get together and let's do that one thing that vision thing and I've paced up and down my office and I've been on my knees and I've prayed and I've talked ad nauseum boy Lord what is it about this church We range from ages way up here to way down there. That's not unusual, almost all churches. Yeah, but look at this group of people. I mean, we got 17 different nationalities represented in the life of this church. We got island people, we got Asian people, we got Hispanic people, we got African American people, we got the Caucasians, and we got all kinds of people we got all kinds of backgrounds. Some people were born in this place and have been in this church since they were before nine months old, and we've got some people who came in last week from New Jersey. Pause for a humorous effect. And I'm saying, man, what in the world is going to bring this group of mutts together for something that we can lay hold of. It may be a little late to the party, but this is it. This is it. This is it. I don't care where you've come from. I don't care what nationality you are. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe God sent you you here. Live like it. Live like it. Once again, and I hope not to pound it like a soapbox inordinately, don't come into this place like, eh, you know, I think I'm going to wait and see what happens next before I get in the canoe. I understand the struggles of it more this week than any week ever before on the struggles. And I'm very, very compassionate about that. And I don't want to push this point. I just want to see God sent you to this place. That I know. That I know. We're to live like it. Number two, what they did in the gospel-driven church is God says later on, I'm not going to take the time to go all the way down to Jeremiah 50. But when he gets to Jeremiah 50, and they're still in this place of exile, he's telling them over and over again, I do not want you to follow the ways of the heathen. I do not want you to sacrifice the way they sacrifice. I do not want you to chase after the gods of the Babylonians. Now, wait a minute. Which is it? You want us to live here like it's our home even though we're aliens and exiles but you don't want us to fully live there. No, what I don't want you to do is assimilate into that culture. I want you to live there but I do not want you to assimilate into that culture and to follow their gods. I want you to listen, God says, to my voice and to hearken unto him because he is the one who has the plan not the Babylonians I want you to live there but I do not want you to so acclimate that nobody can tell the difference between you and them how many people in my neighborhood can tell the difference between me and them How many people in your neighborhood know oh yeah you're one of those funny people you're one of those peculiar people how many people at the job know what you stand for and that are the core of your values or have we just assimilated on into it how we Christians we like to talk about our little antennas don't we you know we're we're we're, we're at the mall we're at a store we're buying something from s- someone and so the 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 person the teller the clerk is on the other side like that and um well it's really a blessed day today isn't it and all of a sudden you begin to think what do you think Ooh. I'll use that word blessed i'll bet this person's a christian you know we have our little signals But you know who knows those signals? Do you know who knows those signals? Christians know those signals. Lost world doesn't know those signals. You haven't gone boldly out there and identified. You've just been spotted by one of your own kind. Live, but don't so assimilate that you lose your identity of who you are. The gospel-driven church. The change of the culture. Listen, let's just go right to meddling, as the old southern preachers used to say. Let's leave preaching behind, and let's just go right to meddling. Which one of you has a goal this week to be so identifiable for Jesus Christ that it would change who you are right now? That's what we're talking about, changing who you are right now we're not talking theoretical about a new program by which we're going to change the culture of the first baptist church we're talking about you and me about what i'm going to do this week that boldly identifies me as a person who lives here but has not assimilated to here And to the extent that we can answer that question is to the extent that that big ship that is so hard to turn around will be turned around. And may I take a step farther since I'm getting myself in as deep as I possibly can. We're not looking for a person other than that kind of person who will promulgate, who will promote, who will lead us in that change. Number three. Live there. Don't try and escape. Cooperate there. Listen to my voice. Don't assimilate to them. And finally, love God and the people. Love God and the people. I like what Keller highlights about that, so I'm going to give him credit for it. Even though it's not an original thought, let's look at it in verse 7 because this is radical. But, Seek the welfare. Give your daughters away, have kids, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. Wait a minute, bub. You've crossed the line. We're Jews. We've come from a place where God has said, we don't... The the truth is, is we pray, God, take down our enemies. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem all the time. Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's who we pray for the peace of. And you're saying, what... You're saying, "Pray for these people." You see, this may be the key characteristic between the attractional person, the attractional church, and the gospel-driven person and church. You say, how is this cultural change going to actually take place? It's going to take place in places like nine o'clock next Sunday morning in this room of getting together and praying for our community. Praying for our leaders. Praying for us and getting out there and telling them about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and asking God because you know it as well as I do. I've been here nine and a half years and it went on longer than that. You know how hard it's going to be to turn this ship it's going to be hard and it's going to begin right there you can't be at odds and always condemning and critical spirit about someone or someones that you're praying for it's an impossibility you can't do it when you pray for them and you pray for us to have more effect in their lives, that ship is going to begin to turn as we pray, as we pray, as we pray, as we pray. Part of that prayer needs to be confession. How we haven't done what God's called us to do. And and pray, oh God, for the welfare of this place. Not for the... Not for, oh, well, if they're good on, you know, if the city hall is good, then we get what we want. You just miss the whole heart to the whole thing. If you're just praying to get. I mean, think about that. Moving to a place. Multicultural. Challenging. Our morality is upside down with the ethics and the family and gender identity and sexuality and crime and well now who else left home and lived someplace else a mixed uh, multicultural ethnic ethnic diverse world upside down of exile, captivity sexual perversions and the family upside down None other than the Lord Jesus Himself, who left His home and lived someplace else, as an example to all of us. He brought the gospel, He is the ransom. I don't know what you want this church to be, but I can tell you who you need to ask you need to ask yourself and will you be a part of that mission that God is on to change the culture of this church to change the culture of this environment in which he's placed us